1: Welcome, everyone, to Rockin' Nation Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Sam Snelling. Uh, this is a, a generically labeled podcast because I'm here with, with my friend, Nate Edwards. Uh, Nate and I are going to do some college football search uh, talking, and we're going to bring in a guest. Um, I, I'm going to apologize ahead of time because we had a, a few issues with our audio, uh, and it may seem to you, uh, and and this might just be a, a complete illusion, but it may seem to you that the audio strangely kind of cuts out at the end um, when you're listening to our
0: guest. Why TV. is that, Papa? <laughs>
1: Uh, so, yeah, we had a few audio issues. Um, we're going to ask Nate, uh, or not Nate, I'm sorry, Mitch, we're going to ask Mitch to clean this up as best we can. Um, but I think both Nate and I are really excited that we got to talk to Bill Connolly. Uh, he is the godfather of Rockham Nation. Uh, he is the, the college football commissioner. He is now employed by ESPN, the Evil Empire. Um, but he has some wonderful insight on, uh, on the Mizzou Coaching search. So let's let's hop in. Also joining us is everybody's old favorite uh, football analytics guy, the one and only uh, ESPN Bill C, Bill Connolly. Bill, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
2: I am wonderful. How are you?
1: Always good to have you on. Uh, Always good to talk to you. Uh, And on a podcast, no less, this is uh, is some exciting stuff. And we brought you on because apparently there was some news that involved Missouri, and uh, you kind of follow Missouri a little bit.
2: What, wait, what? were you going to talk basketball or? <laughs>
1: well, if you want, you know I'm always ready to do that. Uh, Especially, uh, I was telling Nate before we came on, but Illinois uh, is down like 20 points at home to Miami, so uh, uh, there's a nice little rivalry uh, matchup that's not really trending well for the Illini. Uh, yeah, sure. But no, no, we're gonna okay. we're gonna that's, talk that's college football. Good, yeah. So starting off, yeah. The job at Missouri came open because Jim Sturk fired Barry Odom. Uh, were you surprised
2: well, by that? You could, you, the, like the rumors were hard to ignore, right? I mean, there were, um, it, it was becoming pretty clear, especially if they lost to Arkansas that this was over. Um, it, and it was funny because, I mean, I think it was Gabe DeArmond and some others were saying like, you know, even if they beat Arkansas, this, this might be done. Uh, And at first I was like, man, that would still, that would really surprise me a little bit. Cause I mean, nobody, Missouri has never fired a bowl eligible coach before even, I mean, would have been bowl eligible if not for stuff that he had no control over. And um, I thought, man, that'd be, you know, that's a little, a little bold. And I'm wondering, you know, if it's the right move. And then I started thinking about it, like. Really, you're going to let the Arkansas game determine whether you fire a guy or not, where it's like half your second string offense against like half their third string defense and whoever was out with the mumps and all these other things going on. And you're starting a freshman quarterback who then gets hurt and you're playing a different quarterback. And like that was the least indicative game of the year when it comes to what Missouri is capable of. And so it would have been kind of silly to let that game determine whether you keep your $3 million a year or whatever coach or not. So... I mean, in the end, if you, uh, I, there really probably wasn't any difference between five and seven and six and six in that regard. And, and so I kind of at least came around to it in that in that way. Like, I, there is absolutely a case for keeping him. But with the amazing lack of enthusiasm in the Missouri fan base in general and the missed opportunities to build on that enthusiasm a little bit, I, there was absolutely, I think, a case to, to drop him, too.
0: So let's, let's say you are no longer the commissioner of college football. You were just a lowly athletic director at Missouri, and you were in this position that, that Jim Stirk was in. You look at a guy who inherited a program that was kind of falling apart, uh, who had one losing season, then won seven, eight, and six games. Despite the fact that he should have won more this year, would you have fired the guy after going 6-6 six and six this year?
2: To me, like part of that answer, like just aesthetically, no. Um, but if you are, if you are just routinely not coming anywhere close to revenue projections from a ticket sales standpoint, then whether you want that to play a part in it or not, it's going to play a part in your decision. And um, you know, for for what for one reason or another, without going down this road, Missouri's ticket sales fell apart starting in November of 2015 um they were terrible in 2016 they were terrible in 20 they were worse in 2017 they were worse in 2018 i think at the end of the day uh and this year they finally started to peak they got to you got that 62,000 game with old miss uh then you go out and you lose three in a row badly you have, uh, you hold on to 57,000 against florida but then you're back in the 40s against tennessee like the moment passed the moment just vanished and while i would like to i mean i've said for years like you fire a coach when you know that coach isn't going to work out as well as you want it to, or he's not going to be able to meet the goals. You don't want to do it. You don't want to hire a coach if you don't have to, because it is such a massive, spectacular crapshoot. Just look at other programs who are unsatisfied with merely being, who have been unsatisfied with merely being okay. And have just dug themselves bigger holes through the years. I mean, I call it glenn mason territory because minnesota got tired of going seven and six and you know nebraska got tired of going nine and four and now they go four and eight and five and seven uh you know and so on and so forth illinois you know ron zook for all his frustrations he still was able to hit the bowl mark uh, as often as not And, and then without him they fell apart to the extent that they celebrate going six and six now so there is a there is a spectacular risk to doing this, but I do think when the financials are as weird as they have been for Missouri, and where you when you uh, are at a time when you really really need to get your act together and uh, sell tickets and all that other stuff, then you maybe you raise the bar a little bit and, and make a move a little sooner.
1: Well, so I do kind of find that that segment of it interesting, like the. Um you know, the way the financials of it tends to drive a lot of these decisions and more so than, um, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago where guys were giving a little bit more of a lead uh, and and able to kind of withstand uh, a bad season here and there. Because I think when you're a program like Missouri, like, it's really difficult to hit the sort of sustained level of success. And even if you look at, you know, what Gary Pinkle was able to accomplish, you know, subtracting twenty fifteen and just look at like, you know, what, twenty uh two thousand seven through twenty fourteen, where there was all those like double digit win seasons. Um, you know, the the first year they got to the SEC, it was looking like it was gonna be a good season, but they hit some injuries and next thing you know, you're five and seven. And I think that's one of the things that for me, like when you're in a league like the SEC, the margin of error becomes so thin that, that you're one or two bad breaks from you know maybe mm-hmm. being an eight-win team to going down to a, a five- or six-win team. And I kind of feel like that's what happened to Missouri this year. Uh, now, granted, yep. the, the the Kentucky game is a thing of its own, um, but I still kind of feel like the Wyoming game was fluky, and I still kind of look at the uh, the Vanderbilt game as, as being like a weird and I don't want to say it was fluky like they they played horribly they got they got beat because they played horribly uh but I don't necessarily know that you can detach the way that they played from these sort of weird bad breaks that they had sort of received this season And and so for me like I I just wonder if that hurts the perception of the Missouri job and I know that somebody will always be willing to kind of take a uh, a job that's going to pay them three to $4 million a year to, to, to coach football. Um, but is it going to get the guy that you want? And is it going to be a guy who's going to be able to build the, the program, uh, and understand the kind of pitfalls that, uh, uh, that Barry Odom certainly knew about, uh, because he had been around so much.
2: Yeah. I think he, if it was just the Vanderbilt or Kentucky game, he probably survives. Right. And even with those two games, if he beats Tennessee, he probably survives. Um, Well, I mean, he definitely surprised because at that point you're seven and five and you're not, you're not firing a coach at seven and five there, you know, there's only a one win difference between six and seven, but it feels like a gulf at that point, Mm -hmm. um, because you now have a chance to go eight and five in a bowl. And that was basically what you were projected to do anyway, or just slightly below it. Um, but I, I think it was just basically like he, he had so many opportunities to kind of stockpile the goodwill and the, and they just never quite happened. Uh, you know, starting this season with the Wyoming game kind of meant they had to win the next five straight just to kind of build back off of that and build their perceptions back, and they did. Uh, but they kind of used their margin for error immediately, and and you know last year the, the you know playing really well but not getting some bad breaks and not being able to. to uh, take down georgia like losing the kentucky game the way they did They're losing the oklahoma like they were, they had a 10-win season right there set on a platter for him and they couldn't close the kentucky game which even before they got screwed by that pass interference they did about 38 things that i was appalled by in the stands <laughs> yeah maybe pick um, up a first and down then, in the second half <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe don't go into full-on kill the clock mode with six minutes left in the third quarter um and then, like the whole State mistake game was the same way. They, ne- they needed to either create a break or get a break. And instead, they got the wrong breaks. And um, and it just felt like at that point, and I, this isn't me trying to justify it, it's just me trying to understand it. Um, uh, like you, He had so many chances to, to build that kind of that marquee, yeah, we're absolutely headed in the right direction kind of situation. And it, it just never quite happened. The Florida, that winning streak after the Kentucky loss, whomping Florida, whomping Tennessee and all that, that was awesome. And it was, um, it, you know, it, maybe that was the moment. Maybe that was enough. But then losing Oklahoma State kind of, you know, got rid of some of that luster. So I kind of, I mean, I get it. Like the attendance being what it is and all these missed opportunities, even in uh, 2017 as well, um, it just you had this little window of opportunity. You could only create this tiny little window of opportunity to get the fans back interested. You got it. And uh, then you lost to Vanderbilt and then you lost (laughs) to Kentucky and then you lost to everybody else. And so um, I, I do understand it. I don't know what I would have done in that as an athletic director, but I get why the move was made.
0: I think one of the, the more frustrating things with the the downfall, the inevitable downfall of this team was the progression or lack thereof from Kelly Bryant. Because, you know, at Clemson he was, he was okay. Um, you know, his success rates passing the ball were fine. And, he, you know, he passed for more, I think, more yardage this year um, than he did at Clemson. But it was third downs. And I know you always talk about third downs, passing downs being kind of your playmaker down. And Kelly Bryant just didn't make those plays. Now you can make an argument that Clemson's weapons are a lot better than than Missouri's, but you know, But, but at the same time, yeah. he, using those weapons, he was actually we were very effective on third down first. You know, six games of the year, um, right. other than injuries, is there anything else that you could see or you could cite, uh, either from an eye test or a uh, advanced stats test, where you go, this is why the offense fell apart.
2: No, to me, it starts with the offensive line. Um, I, well, two things. The offensive line was number one because we can talk about Kelly Bryant's injuries, which it sounded like, you know, maybe Derek Dooley's saving face that w- when he's talking about it this past week before the Arkansas game, but he's probably telling the truth about just the number of things he had to fight through and the things they had to take out of the playbook because Bryant couldn't do as much. And then you start to look at their receiving core for the last couple of games of the year. And you know you're expecting a big season from Jonathan Johnson. He barely plays the last month. Jonathan Nance is in and out. Uh, Albert O is is in and out. And you're basically throwing a Barrett Bannister. You're you're playing SEC teams, even you know even bad ones like Arkansas. You're playing SEC teams with with a former walk on and a backup tight end as your as your guys. Um, So by the end of the year, I kind of understood a lot more clearly how things fell apart for the offense. But at that start, at that Vanderbilt game, especially, that was just the line not blocking anybody. They, you know, it, it was a disappointing performance we saw from the line against Wyoming. But I felt over those next five games, they got better every single week. Ole Miss's defensive front was pretty good, and they did whatever they wanted to against Ole Miss. And so I thought that was kind of a you know. You, They'd stepped around a landmine there. They'd figured things out. And and then you go to Vanderbilt, which, you know, probably had the second worst defensive front that Missouri played this year. And they couldn't do a thing. They couldn't open a hole. They couldn't protect Bryant. Um, and and so that was number one. And that doesn't have an – I still don't have an explanation for that. How the heck did the the offensive line completely fall apart without an injury? Yeah. Um, and then number two is not only did Kelly Bryant have injuries or suffer injuries, but he suffered the the injuries that he absolutely could not suffer. You know, the, right at the start against Troy, um, his his lower half, his his, his legs um, were are are his. Biggest strong suit, and we saw it against West Virginia and Southeast Missouri early in the season, just his ability to shake off tacklers, his his leg strength, Even not, not even talking about running, but just being able to shake uh, by time and get away from uh, tacklers and whatnot. His, his lower body was uh, his best asset, and then, you know, he goes and hurts his lower body. And so that really took away the kind of the engine of whatever makes Kelly Bryant successful, and, and then other injuries pile up from there and all that. So I, I kind of – I understand that, and I understand why the receiving core wasn't very effective. Uh, I still don't completely understand how Jalen Knox and Cam Scott both nosedived, but some of it I understand. Um, but – that the line doesn't have an explanation. That was the thing that Missouri heading into this season, that was the thing Missouri was supposed to be able to lean on no matter what. You're going to be able to run the ball. You're going to be able to, p- to protect Kelly Bryant. And then everything else kind of falls into place as it may. We knew there were some receivers gone and there could be, you know, the receiving court might be hit or miss here and there, but the O line was going to be awesome and the run game was going to be awesome. And it wasn't, especially when Bryant couldn't run as well.
0: And, you know, I you talk about Knox, you talk about. The lack of development, and and one of your your key things, especially with head coaching, is you know acquiring talent, developing talent, and deploying that yeah. talent. And for a long time, we've had many discussions on the site this year that, and especially an opinion that I hold is is Odom did not do a very good job of making his guys better. And yeah. I guess the question that stands out there is, is Dr. Pat Ivy that important to the Missouri football <laughs> team, and can we bring him back?
2: Well, I mean, I would like to think that more than one strength coach could do great things with this program. Um, so, so that that is certainly, uh, Ivy I was great, and and Odom wanted to make sure it was his program. So he, you know, seemed to target certain guys, and maybe there's a good reason for that. But. Um, but no, like halfway through his second year, uh, you know, when they, they lay that just that dreadful egg against Purdue and then they get romped by Auburn and, and you're halfway through the year, I remember thinking and writing a little bit uh, about it too. And that like, okay, so we know he can identify talent. You know, he, he went out immediately and got uh, Damari Crockett. He got Keel Garrett. He seems to be pretty good at that. Do we know that he can develop talent at all? And that, I mean, of course that's weight room stuff, but it's also just like, developing their football IQ, making them better at the things they're supposed to be better at. And there was uh, halfway through his second year, I was trying to figure out like who's gotten better Um, over the next two years. I think that, you know, we saw guys get better. And so that was I I thought that was a hurdle that had been cleared as I wrote about at ESPN a couple of times now, like his. The 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 culture he built here um, it took a massive test this past offseason with the sanctions and all that, and and passed with flying colors. Like people, you know, wanted to play for Barry Odom, and they stuck around even when they it looked like they weren't going to get a bowl and all this other stuff. Like they passed a major test in that regard, but then halfway through this year. Uh, when suddenly the line, the offensive line has taken a massive step backwards and the sophomore receivers haven't developed at all. And you start to ask those same questions. Like he, he can obviously develop linebackers. Um, no question about that. Defensive tackles. Definitely. That seems to be in pretty, you know, pr- pretty good shape. Their <laughs> safety is not bad. Cornerbacks were a little hit or miss, but I think that was still like, I think the defense as a whole came around to a good degree other than pass rushing. But Suddenly, the offensive linemen were worse, and the receivers were worse, and the running backs weren't at at least weren't better, and the quarterback got worse, even if there were injuries involved. And and so all those same questions popped up, and it again, I get it. Like I I do I do understand why uh, Stirk made the move.
1: So as far as I mean, we we know that obviously Barry's gone, and Missouri has to find a new coach. Um, But before we kind of get into like maybe who might be a good fit. Where do you see, you know, there have been some jobs that have kind of opened. Uh, I think a lot of people were a little surprised to see Ole Miss pull the trigger. Uh, there's been a few reports that, you know, their decision to kind of remove Matt Luke was almost a, a response to right. uh, to Missouri. <laughs> Basically saying, well, if they're not happy, then we should be unhappy too. Um, but, I like, where does Missouri sort of lay in the pecking order here? Because I look at it from a different point of view uh you know as a fan and you think oh well like arkansas is a train wreck right now and the roster is a disaster um they have no recruiting class whatsoever coming in i know that there are probably still some guys that missouri's gonna lose but um i think arkansas had like four or five guys committed uh last i saw and and so what where is missouri in the pecking order here where all the jobs that are open uh I know they're maybe not the most attractive job, but certainly they've got to be one of the most attractive
2: jobs. Right. And I think um, – right. I, and I do think – and I tweeted about this on uh, when the firing came out. But I do think, you know, stepping back and looking at the landscape, this hasn't – or it hasn't yet anyway – become a crazy coaching carousel season. USC doesn't look like it's actually changing. A lot of the main – Florida State has, obviously. But a lot of the main jobs seem like they're going to be stable – and that's a good time to jump right if you're if you're if you're exactly 50/50 on whether to fire your coach or not you step back and you look at the other vacancies and you realize okay well we can't compete with Florida State We can compete with Arkansas. We can at least like put together a pitch that works against, you know, a guy trying to thinking about going to Arkansas. um, And you start to realize, hey, maybe this is a good time. Maybe we're a few spots further up in line than we would be if we waited another year to do this. And and so that's, you don't do it just because of that. But if you really were just completely split and not sure what to do, maybe that pushes you over the top. So, you know, Ole Miss came open since then. And, and yeah, I saw the same things and then panicking. Oh, we can't let, we can't let Missouri get ahead of us, even though they kind of already were. Um, but it, it, it becomes a very interesting thing. Like which one of these three jobs now within the SEC is better. They can all pay approximately the same amount. Um, you know, Arkansas, maybe Arkansas has uh, boosters who are a little crazier. Uh, maybe Ole Miss has boosters who are a little crazier. Maybe they could spend a little bit more. But, you know, it'll be the same ballpark anyway. And so, yeah, then it is basically like what's the guy looking for? And hopefully the fact that Missouri is in the SEC East, uh, which is which is a fine division, but isn't the SEC West, Um Hopefully, if you're Missouri, you hope that maybe that makes a difference. Or if you're going after Lane Kiffin, uh, telling him, "Hey, you get to play Tennessee every year if you come here." Maybe that makes a difference. Um, you can you can rub, you can pour all the salt in that wound that you want if you're playing them every year. Um, may, you know, maybe those things make a difference. But you can at least compete with those schools, even if uh, one of them ends up getting going a little crazy and ponying up more money than you do.
1: It's almost like a, a good thing that. Uh... That Jeremy Pruitt will say kind of pulled Barry Odom down the stretch and kind of you know made Tennessee look like they were right by beating up on some bad teams, and so they're going to keep him around. When boy Tennessee still needs some fixing.
2: Yeah, they. I mean, they definitely improved down the stretch. It wasn't just playing bad teams, but they still um, they aren't top twenty good. Uh, and and it was. Um, especially like when, when they got their sixth win, they got, they beat Missouri. And, and, you know, it was big, you know, Tennessee, Tennessee Twitter was very, very excited. And, and I got some uh, mentions on Twitter talking about like, have you ever seen a turnover or turnaround like this before? I uh, like, yeah, like every year we see turnarounds like this. You, were, <laughs> you were, I mean, they were, they were, let's see, they were, after they got blown out by Alabama and by the way, they played three good teams that got blown out by all three. After they got blown out by Alabama, they were fifty first in my SP Plus rankings. After they beat Missouri, they were thirty eighth. Like they improved, but they weren't exactly playing like a top five team all of a sudden. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so Bill, with with the openings that we currently have and the coaching pool that is currently out there, uh, we're feeling pretty good that you know Missouri can can get at least a couple of guys to the school. I got my first question for you <laughs> would be: Who would you want at Missouri, and why is it Willie Fritz?
2: Yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of an open book in that regard. No, I I, I do think like, to, <laughs> to step back for a second. I do think Stirk will. Every indication suggests like head coaching experience, which is always important, is kind of worth double to him. And so not only does that mean he might favor a young up-and-coming head coach over like a, a high-profile coordinator? But it also means like the older guys, the the, the seasoned guys, uh, the Kwan, the Konzo Martin and older guys. I almost said Quanzo. Wow, I'm, I'm really out of practice. Um, <laughs> I – Like those guys are going to get a serious look like um, he's not going to hire Dave (laughs) Doran, but if Dave Doran were coming off like a better season this year, like an eight win season, just having a guy who's won eight or nine games so many times would be very appealing to him, I think. Um, And so I, I I was kind of stepping back and trying to figure out who, who that meant exactly. Like if there was a good Dennis Erickson type these days, and there's obviously not, then I, you know, he, he might get a look too, but I do think, Unless you're going to try to put make a case for like a Dana Hol- Holgorsen type, uh, you're basically then that head coaching experience is leading you to guys like Blake Anderson at Arkansas State, which I don't, I haven't seen his name mentioned uh, these last few days anyway. But Brian Harson at Boise State and good old Lane um, Lane Kiffin has has. Uh, I, I just the most incredibly unique set of experiences <laughs> of any coach in college football. And now he's made a top 50 team out of Florida Atlantic two out of three years. Um, I, I think he's rehabbed wh- wh- wherever his image was from a few years ago. I think he's rehabbed it. He's he gets quieter every single year at FAU just kind of does his job and does it seemingly pretty well. And I think he's is uh, a less of a scary candidate to some people than he was before. Now, I mean, again, we're talking about competing with Arkansas and Ole Miss. They're probably going to have to compete with Arkansas and Ole Miss for Lane. And if you want him, you're going to have to pay more for him now. But I think he would be a, a strangely interesting option. Five years ago, I would have been appalled at every word that's coming out of my mouth. But I do think <laughs> like he's he's passed a lot of tests in my eyes. Um, and I think he's, he seems to be ready for a shot like this. Plus, you know, if you're ever – you're just curious, like, what is Missouri's ceiling from a recruiting standpoint? Obviously, he's not going to sign top five classes, but he'd probably signed top 20 classes. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see, like, what that – is, is Missouri a school where a top 20 class can come in and, and thrive? Or does it become, like, you know, those those last couple of Butch Davis teams at Tennessee? Like, can you – can you do you need those chip-on-shoulder guys that Missouri's always had? Or can you like, – is this a place where a bunch of four-star guys can thrive and you can actually take a huge step forward as a program that way? I'm really – uh, curious about that. And Kiffin is the guy who would get you, get you that answer. Probably
0: God, just as coming from a combined Missouri USC household, like the Joey Freshwater experience yes. has just scarred me for life. Uh, I, we, the wife and I were talking about it today. And said, oh, I didn't realize Missouri liked to settle for mediocrity. I was like, well, okay, but you know, but Lane has done well, um, at FAU right. and maybe he has turned a corner, but yeah, there's always going to be these vestiges of what he used to be that scare me off. Right.
2: Yeah, no. It's, if you if you ignore everything from his resume except from the moment he became Alabama's offensive coordinator, sure, sure, he, he's a national title offensive coordinator. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, did they actually win a title under him, or did they no, just? No, he to?
0: he bailed, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he bailed. Well, and then they lost that game anyway. But he he, he made what's his name Sims their 2014 quarterback um, a very very prolific quarterback, and and uh, they made the playoff and so on and so forth. And and wait, no. Man, I'm getting all my – see, this is where when you go to the damn CFP every single year, I start to get confused after a while. <laughs> um, Jake Coker in 2015, was he the – I can't remember. Was he the coordinator that year when they won? Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was. He was. So they, they lost in the semis in, in 14. They won in 15. They lost in the finals with him gone in 16 there you go. yeah. um, or, or something to that effect. Regardless. Uh, he was a good offensive coordinator for a very talented team. And then he goes to FAU and puts together <laughs> two, like their two best seasons of all time in a three-year span. And so if you just look at that and you ignore USC and you ignore the Raiders and you ignore him lighting Knoxville on fire, basically, then, um, then it looked pretty appealing. But it will be very interesting to see, to find out here in the coming days who Sterk actually is, is – Wanting who's number one on his list versus who's like number three or four, who he's willing to pay extra for, I am very curious because you know he's out there. We've heard Harson's name; there are plenty of others that every school is going after, and I'm I'm just curious what his approach
0: is. For my own selfish approach, because I've already written five thousand words on different coaches this week, t- talk talk to our listenership about one William Billy Napier because he is he is currently number one in my heart uh, after what he's done at. Uh, Whatever the Louisiana school calls themselves right now. Um, but we kind of talk about his his journey, if you will, and what do you think as far as a fit uh, with Billy Napier in Missouri?
2: Yeah, you're saying uh, thousands of words is re- immediately reminds me of the, um, what was it, the 2012 uh, yeah. basketball coaching <laughs> search where I profiled 138 coaches and then woke up one, <laughs> one morning and they had hired a uh, 139th. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anywho, yeah, no, Billy <laughs> Napier, like, I don't know what his. What he's interested in, or where he wants to go, maybe the fact that he is from Georgia, went to Furman, all this other stuff. Maybe that means he kind of gives Ole Miss a, a home field advantage, so to speak. If all the, if every school is going after him, but man, I mean, you want to talk about a guy who checks every box from a resume standpoint. Um, he he worked for Dabo, he worked for Saban, um, he, uh, he he went and uh, became. Um, Colorado state's associate head coach for a year. And and then I guess was that I think McIlwain was there. And then anyway, he comes back and he becomes Saban's receivers coach for four years, goes out and coaches for Todd Graham, which is a very underrated resume point because Todd Graham, by all accounts is he's a jerk. Um, Like, and and, wasn't fun to employ like athletic directors didn't seem to like him very much. Either he would leave early or, you know, he would just become a pain. He's a heck of a, coach developer. You know, he had his hand in getting Gus Malzahn on a, a a start and Chad Morris and all these other guys and uh Mike Norvell at Memphis. Chip Long. Um, chip, chip like his his resume for his coaching tree might be more impressive than Nick Saban's. So not only does Napier have Clemson and Alabama on his resume, but he worked for uh Todd Grant for 2 years or 1 year, I guess. And then he goes to Louisiana Lafayette and just and sets the world on fire, recruits better classes than Sunbelt teams normally recruit second year, they're in my, like, my, my new SP Plus rankings are very very like unfriendly to mid-majors overall um, as much as that hurts me, but they're still in the top 30 from the Sunbelt, like that's, that's how good they've been, and so I, I mean, yeah, like I don't know what he wants or how much he would demand or whatever, but in terms of just who checks every box on the resume, like that dude checks the, every box that you could possibly ask for
1: well, so we, I mean, we've kind of talked about Napier and, and I mean, made casual reference to, to Willie Fritz. I mean, I've, I do not think Bill, you, you hide your
2: affection for the man. Um, He's awful. He's one of my favorites <laughs> that I've, I've talked to through the years. And I mean, successful as hell too. I mean, that's that too.
1: Yeah. I actually like, I've seen a couple kind of comments, you know, sort of refer to him as, as, you know, kind of, uh, not necessarily like, you know, being the same as Commander Sin, but it basically like that higher would be like Commander Sin, And I just like, I, every time I see that connection to someone like as successful and uh, with this like longevity that he's had, I, I just have to shake my head a little bit. Cause like there's,
2: He's Kim Anderson. If Kim Anderson had left D2 and gone to uh, take over a Southland conference and immediately built it into a tournament contender, and then he went to a Sunbelt team and built them into an immediate con- title contender in two years, then went to the AAC and took on like some like six and 26 program and immediately turned them into at least an NIT team. That's what he's done over the last decade since he left central Missouri. So I get the I understand how people are making that connection because he coached central Missouri. He's coached in Juco. He's coached everywhere, but he has an extra decades worth of variety on his resume that Kim Anderson didn't have. So
1: outside of uh, Fritz and outside of um, Napier and uh, (laughs) and Lane Kiffin, trying to remember all the guys we have talked about, there's just been so many names kind of flowing through. Uh, I like, Harsin uh, is the guy that we haven't you know, quite gone in. Do you really think that there's a realistic chance that Missouri would try to lure away a guy who has really kind of been based out West for his entire career, has has turned things around at Boise? Um, you know, Boise kind of has the, the added benefit of kind of being, um, you know, a team that is going to routinely kind of be at the top of their league. Uh, you know, kind of turning that into Missouri where you're kind of routinely going to be at the bottom of the league. I mean, it's just as far as, as, as revenue and spending is concerned. Um, do you think that that's a possibility? <laughs>
2: uh, well, yes. first of all, according to Wikipedia, he is uh, the head coach of the university of Missouri at the moment. Um, somebody has pulled, <laughs> pulled, I pulled up his Wikipedia page to make sure I had the years on his bio. Right. And, um, and apparently Wikipedia says it's Brian Harson So you know, you've got that, um, yeah. and it hasn't been changed yet. Apparently, so I—I I mean, it's—it's it's, what working at Boise State gets you is like you don't—you get to be super picky about where you go. Um, you know, he—he he was Chris Peterson's offensive coordinator for a long time. Um, he goes to kind of burnish his resume. He goes to Texas for two years. He takes over at Arkansas State, and it's like. Out of nowhere, Peterson. Like he, I think he he told me specifically. Like he had no idea Peterson was ever going to leave Boise State. That's why he kind of went out to build his resume elsewhere. Uh, And he was at Arkansas State for one year. Was excited about being there. Was ready to be there a while. And then Peterson leaves, and they call, and Boise State calls, and he goes home. Um, He's 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 been he's done a wonderful job at Boise for sure, but he can be lured. It's just it's going to take money and opportunity. It's going to take a perfect situation, which. You know, you'd have to ask him what a perfect situation is for him. But I mean, number one, like the idea that he would only be like attracted to like a job in the West. um, I don't think that's true. He's going to go where the opportunity is Um, like and, and because he's a Boise State guy, you don't have to worry about this being a situation where, you know, Mama calls and he goes home. He comes to Missouri for two years and then he leaves. Like the only thing he would leave for at that point is a bigger job. He he's a Boise State guy. He doesn't have any ties to bigger schools other than I guess Texas. Um, Very minor ties to Texas. So I do think he could be lured. I I don't know if Missouri would be able to do it. Money would probably be a pretty good way to 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 bring him along. If you want to offer him what was Odom was making in the threes, if you want to offer him four and a half or five, I bet he'd come. Uh, and and really, I guess if you're Stirk, you don't want to get too far down your list. You want to make a hire pretty fast, and so maybe you do offer him that much. But I, I do think he's at least semi-realistic. be if Missouri is interested in him, I, I think he could be lured. It's, it's you know going to take some money.
0: So uh, with everything that we've talked, all the guys that we've looked at, and, and the situation that Missouri is currently in, realistically, realistically, you are the one in charge of hiring. Oh God, who are you going? <laughs> with? What of
2: course. Um, no, I, <laughs> I liked it. Well, I, man, this is extremely hedgy, hedgy and noncommittal, but I like the list so far. Like I, Harson, you know, the, the guys we know about anyway, you start getting into like the Troy Calhouns. You notice that like Troy Calhoun has the greatest agent in the world. He's mentioned for every single opening that comes about. Um, and he's always connected to this job or that job. And he's never, he's not going to be Missouri's next head coach. Yep, you know, Monken's not going to be, Missouri's next head coach, most likely, Um, but of the guys that seem the most realistic right now until tomorrow when the list entirely change uh, changes, I'd be fine with any of them. Napier is awesome. Harson's really good. Fritz is, I, I feel like I haven't really made Fritz's case well enough, but very solid. Um, And, and, you know, I do think Lane is a lot more interesting now than maybe he was a couple of five years ago in my eyes, at least. So I I do just pure personal curiosity leads me towards, uh, towards Kiffin. But I, I mean, I, would be satisfied with any of them. I think
0: I just, uh, just real quick. If we, if we get, if we get Kiffin and that's crazy, what are the odds that he bounces in two, three years for something bigger?
2: It's it's quite possible, yeah. It, it absolutely is. Um, I think at this point, this pro what this program needs. Uh, I, I would a guy stay twenty years is not the number one question I have for the for any candidates. Really, any time, but especially right now, uh, this the program needs a shot in the arm, needs a way to stand out. And I think if you know if Kiffin were to come in and do Kiffin thing, the good. The, let me specify the good the good Kiffin things um sign good recruits uh sign a series of good recruiting classes win some games probably not win in east because georgia's going to win every east title from now through the next like 35 years but um you know threaten 10 wins at some point just do really good things you know he's going to be a smart ass he's going to get the crowd uh going uh, attendance would probably pick up if all that works out like that and he leaves in for three years or four years or whatever you're in a pretty good place to to find a replacement so get back to that um and and just figure out the rest later. I don't think he would stay all time. He has no Missouri connections other than his godfather's Warren Powers, apparently, which is one of the things we learned today. Um, but it'd be it's it's fine. Like this doesn't have to be the twenty year hire right here. Just get the give the program a shot in the arm um, and and figure things out three or four years from now. <laughs>
1: okay and we're back uh so apologies everyone we had a little bit of a, an audio issue uh with uh, i have realized this is probably not a great commercial for zencaster.com this is who we typically <laughs> use for our podcasts uh but had a little bit of a hiccup and so nate and i are still here we uh, are having trouble getting bill back on but that was actually the last question that we were planning on asking bill so i told him to just Take the rest of the night off and and relax. Uh, his duties are uh, are no longer needed for uh, for the Rockham Nation podcast. Uh, Nate, any takeaways from from what Bill had to say?
0: Uh, reason, logical. It's about exactly what we'd expect from uh, the Godfather, Bill Connolly. Um, I feel uh, a little bit better about Lane Kiffin, which sounds crazy coming out of my mouth, but. Uh, <laughs> bill has that event. it's
1: still so weird it's, to like even consider it it's weird
0: I, I i will believe it when i see it and i feel slightly better because he is right lane's been a good boy for the past couple of years so um i am i I'm, i was good with a lot of the people on the list i was shocked by a couple of names on there um but you know somewhere between willie fritz brian harson uh Billy napier lane kiffin like you know i think i think it's a good list and I'm glad the Godfather approves as well. And I, I think, um, you know, whichever one we get should be good. So I, I feel better.
1: As long as it's not Skip Holtz.
0: God, just no. No, 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 no. Skip Holtz needs to stay in the <laughs> G5. Skip Holtz, when he tries to do anything in the big boy jobs, just falls down on his face. So keep him in Louisiana Tech, even though he's like super mad at the administration right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, well, uh,. We're going to get on out of here. Um, Nate is uh, going to be back later in the week with uh, another podcast to talk more about the the updates and all that kind of stuff. Make sure you f- follow our friend if you are not al- already uh, at ESPN underscore Bill C. That's Bill Connolly. Uh, we thank him for his time. Uh, if it is, uh, if you're looking for a Christmas gift, he always has the 50 best college football teams of all time. Worth it. Uh, Buy book. it. It
0: is good. It is good.
1: And yeah there's one thing now that i'm kind of running rockham nation i definitely miss uh you know reading bill's writing as as often as uh, i was able to when he was running the site um hopefully we've assembled a team that uh at least kind of captures some of what he was able to to build uh, but we thank him for his time tonight uh make sure you follow uh nate on twitter also uh nate what's your twitter handle
0: at nate g edwards simple
1: see we're, we're into these uh, middle initials because i'm at sam t snelling you can follow me as well uh so um if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast please subscribe please share it with your friends uh put it on facebook on twitter and everywhere we want people to listen Uh, To the magical words of Bill Connolly as well as me and Nate because we're cool too Uh, so until next week I'll be back with an episode of Dive Cuts uh, by the way uh, next week Um, we're kind of focusing on the the coaching search Uh, so Nate you'll be back uh, this week and we'll kind of see how it goes from there but be on the lookout because we will have lots of podcasts coming your way with all the Mizzou coaching search news Uh, so until then thanks for tuning in